You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 48 is Talia Zedek. Now, you might not recognize that name, but her 90s band, Come, was highly lauded. They're based in New York and would often open for Nirvana or other big bands like that. Among their fans include not only Kurt Cobain, but Bob Mould, Jay Maskus from Dinosaur Jr., the Indigo Girls, Amy Ray, etc. Well, she's done a lot of work since then, and you're listening right now to Afloat by the Talia Zedek Band from their 2016 release, Eve. And the first song we're going to discuss here is also from that album, a song called Northwest Branch. We'll then look back to her first solo album, 2001's Been Here and Gone, and talk about the song Desanctified, parentheses, full circle. And then we'll look forward slightly to a weirder track, Hell is in Hello, by the Talia Zedek Band's Trust Not Those in Whom Without Some Touch of Madness from 2004. And we'll conclude by listening to a track from a brand new collaboration. That band is called E. They released their self-titled record in November 2016, and we will listen to the song Regatta. For more information about Talia, check out taliazedek.bandcamp.com. If you enjoy this discussion, I actually continued it after the current recording and issued that as supporter-only audio. You can either do that straight through our website, nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, or through patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. Hello, Talia. Hey. So we've just heard a little bit of a float. There's an, a great video of, I think it's just you and David Curry, the viola player, online doing that, which is, so do I understand right that this Eve album grew out of your sort of stripped down live shows? I think I read that somewhere. That song actually was I recorded it solo for this EP that came out in between Via and Eve on it called Six. Six was sort of a limited edition thing. The band really loved it and really wanted to re-record a full band version. So we decided to put it on Eve too and ended up starting with it. Well, and it shows kind of like the beginning of Northwest Branch, we're going to hear in a second, that this compositional technique that sounds like it's fairly common in your stuff that you just, you're sitting on this riff and you could just come in either by yourself or maybe there are other things swirling around you or, but that becomes the basis. And then it really moves from there. It's not just, we build on that riff. It moves somewhere completely different for part of the rest of the song, at least. (laughs) Yeah. I guess I kind of tend to do that. Yeah. Particularly on this last record on Eve, which Northwest Branch is on, it, it has a, had a lot of, yeah, maybe a little slightly more complicated parts or something. I guess I've just read the description as slow burn. I'm not sure what that <laughs> exactly means, but just the fact that the average song length in here, I mean, this Northwest Branch is six minutes and it's not that it's a prog song. It's just that it lets you seep into it. You sit on this opening riff. It really establishes it. You give a lot of chance for the other musicians to do little tinklings and noodlings around you. Then it moves to something else. And there aren't any more sections than are in another kind of song. You know, there's basically an A section, a B section, a transition, but they're drawn out enough that you really get to feel them. And it gives you a lot of room for dynamic build. Thanks. Yeah, I think that's what we were trying to kind of do with that one. Any particular introductory words about Northwest Branch, about what it's about, what its origin was? For any folks that live around Silver Spring, Maryland, or sort of in the D.C. area, you've probably driven past a sign for Northwest Branch a gazillion times on the Beltway. And I grew up in that area, in D.C. first, and then in Silver Spring later, where I went to high school. And I lived sort of right behind Northwest Branch, in a, a branch in that part of the country is kind of like a very, very small tributary, I guess. You wouldn't call it a river. I guess you could call it a creek. This particular thing of water 
eventually hooked up with the CNO Canal, I believe, in a, into the Chesapeake Bay, somewhere along the line. There's a line in the song about that, how you could drift all the way to the ocean. I don't know if you've ever seen a movie called River's Edge. Mm-hmm. That movie is pretty an apt description of my adolescent years growing up in Silver Spring. We spent a lot of time in the woods and a lot of time by Northwest Branch. Like, you know, there's a lot of kind of crazy things going on there. Also, it ran right underneath the Beltway underpass. And someone had set up a huge rope swing that you could swing all the way out into the middle of the water and like jump off and stuff. So, yeah, it was kind of um, about uh, that part of my life.
Since you concluded that introduction talking about the theme, let's talk at least briefly about the lyrics. There's much more music than lyrics here, but you start describing this reminiscence thing, this dangerous game playing over the creek, <laughs> and then it sort of morphs so that by the second chorus or something, it's not, it's a game, you know, talking about the thing, but it's in your brain, frame by frame. So it's sort of the memory becomes the game. Say a little about, so what is the connection between, it seems like as this evolves, you go from talking specifically about the scene to talking about you're remembering the scene and sort of what function that's serving for you now. We did play a lot of sort of weird games in the woods there. Like I remember um, me and one of my friends was down in the woods and I remember like all the boys used to go down there and they, a lot of them had BB guns back then, all totally sanctioned by their parents and everything. <laughs> As far as I know, but they just started chasing us like through the woods, like with their BB guns. There was like five or six of them like shooting at us. We were hiding from them and stuff. It was all kind of fun and games, but it's just, yeah, it's kind of like how, you know, kids and teenagers are just kind of feral creatures in a way and sort of remembering that. Yeah, it sounded like by the end when, you know, it's a game that you play in your brain. Well, there was a lot of drugs involved, too. Uh, Okay, so that's still talking about the past. It's funny because my brother is also a musician and a songwriter. He heard that song and um, he said, you know what, Talia, I also wrote a song about Northwest Branch. Ah. I was like, no way! So musically, we've got the slow burn riff that, I mean, is this like a float, something that you feel like that it sort of starts with you just jamming on this and that this could be a self-contained solo song as well? Or is this pretty intensively like you couldn't really do this without the full band? I did actually play this solo a bunch of times before I did it with the whole band. And it definitely worked solo. I've been doing that a little bit more lately because the band, like everyone's busy, it's hard to get them together. So sometimes I'll just sort of, if I've got a bunch of new songs, I'll try them out first, like just playing solo at at a thing because just kind of get my head around it a little bit. I find that even if I work something out solo and then introduce the band to it, that sort of depending on the song, the band performance could sort of ruin it playing solo in the future. That what you hear you know, especially when you get to this B section that it's so drum intensive at that point. So does that become what it is in your head? Is that big sound so that if you went back and you're just trying to play it by yourself, that it feels weak or does it still have its full impact? 
trying to think if I've played that solo since then. I usually would do a slightly different arrangement. Probably not six minutes long. Probably. <laughs> Just to give props to my band, that whole double time drum thing at the end was, that was my idea. That was like the band, like, chiming in on the arrangement. We all worked it out and tried a bunch of different things, kind of like, how can we bring this part to another level? And um, someone suggested, probably was Jonathan Ullman, the drummer, that, you know, he tried playing that part double time. So definitely when I bring in songs like the band, I write the melody and the lyrics, but definitely the guys that I play with are always welcome. And I'm happy to hear their ideas about stuff and suggestions. But you had that main riff, not with the double time, but just the done Done. Dun, 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 dun. That was part of the original. Yeah. And frankly, it's really unlike me to write a riff like that. And I really tried to like come up with something else. You know what I mean? Like, how this is like so. Zeppelin. It's, uh, it sounds. <laughs> yeah. It's so like, I don't know, but I just couldn't. Like, it's the only thing that once I, you know, I came up with it, I couldn't. That's the only thing that worked. Yeah, well, for someone who's known as a sort of guitar hero, I don't know. <laughs> it's difficult in the come songs for me to tell who's doing. Oh, I'm not a guitar hero. That's Chris. We both played rhythm and lead income. Just that it's dueling it leads. Is, but he's, yeah. he's definitely a, a much uh, better player than I am. So in your solo stuff, like it's not just chords, but everything serves the song or the riff. There's no showing off. <laughs> or I know the viola <laughs> a lot of times here, what he just puts on a, some distortion or something. So it sounds like we've got a lead guitar here going against you. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, he does. He's got like a distortion. He's got a, a bunch of different things that he does. At the end of this song, actually considerably before the uh, double time drum thing, I think just about three minutes in, where you return to your main riff after you've done the, the Zeppelin section, you have a sort of a light viola solo. But then when you, you come back in, there's a creek that runs out of the highway. It sounds there like he's playing a lead part, that he's playing a distorted, you know, that this could be the, the lead guitar slot. Once again. You're right about that, yeah. And it's just an interesting mix because it's. I think of you as an acoustic band, but you're not playing acoustic on an, almost anything. <laughs> it's just that it's got the open piano and the usually clean viola sound, and it's an interesting blend. Yeah, we are definitely not an acoustic band, though. We can get pretty quiet, but um, that is not the way we would... Like if we had to, do you know what I mean? Like if you're like, well, yeah. If if you've got a full drum kit, you don't call it acoustic, even though drums are an acoustic instrument, of course. So. Even the guitar, like I, I don't think most of those songs would work that well on an acoustic guitar. Well, let's maybe get our second example out here. We can still bring back particular things from Northwest Branch as we go, but the second one goes back to your first solo album, 2001's "Been Here and Gone." Desanctified and then full circle in parentheses. Do you want to say anything about where you're at with this album and this song in particular? This album, you know, it came out like about 15, 16 years ago now. And I really, really liked it. I mean, it was the first thing I did. I was kind of still not sure exactly how I was going to do this post come solo thing. So I had a lot of different players on the record, a lot of whom ended up being in the band that played on Eve. So Mel plays piano, Mel Letterman, on most of the tracks. At the time, he was in a band called Victory at Sea, which was quite successful and toured a lot. But he always recorded, I think, on all my records. And now as a full-time member of the band, Dave Curry plays on it. And Chris Brokaw plays on it. Who was on the last Come lineup, right? He was in the whole Come lineup. Yeah, was, me and Chris were the two continuing. Sorry, sorry, I was thinking about Dan, that, that he added drums to the last 
Daniel Coughlin played drums on the last come record and was in, in the last kind of version of come did a lot of touring and um, he was playing on that album. He became like a main part of the, what was going to become the Talia Zedek band, which he actually left the band in like 2009, something like that. And I've had a few different drummers since then, but he played on that one. And uh, I wrote that song before kind of when it was a period in between after come and before I really decided what I was going to do, you know, and kind of had that song kicking around. And I, I really liked the lyrics to that song a lot. And I think like some of the lyrics on that record or, or some of my favorite of stuff I've written. And it was called Desanctified because it was originally called Full Circle. And then I changed it to Desanctified. It was, we actually recorded it in a church that had been desanctified and turned into a recording studio. And I just remember like being kind of fascinated with the whole process. I guess when a church is put out of the commission of being a house of God or whatever, they actually go through this sort of ritual and it's called desanctification. So anything else that happens in that building isn't sacrilege or something. So, uh, you know, I sort of started really liking that word. So I kind of added that in the title. It seems to fit the theme, just grace deserting you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like about sort of being stuck in the past, which I think I kind of was then and sort of how that's kind of like can really be a dead end to kind of like rehash and rehash and rehash sort of stuff. So that was me kind of working that kind of stuff out. I guess there's a lot of sort of double entendres in there that I kind of like. And I just like that song. It used to be a real sort of stalwart of our live set, too. Fun song to play live.
So it's the same kind of thing that you start out with a nice slow riff here. You're playing two guitars, so you're kind of punctuating yourself with a little more, not a lead one, sort of just playing single notes in the low strings. This is recorded live so that what the piano and the viola are doing are just playing off you and playing off each other, or is this overdubbed? It's not live. I think we recorded it, me on guitar, Chris Brokaw on guitar, and Daniel on drums. I think that was all done live Okay. at the same time. And then the viola and the piano were definitely overdubbed. Like in the same sort of time period session, you know, it was done in the same studio, but just because a lot of times in in studios, because of separation or depending on what kind of sound you want to get and what your mic situation is like, it's pretty difficult to record like five instruments simultaneously. Because that was actually done with an acoustic piano, so that had to go on afterwards and stuff. But I'm pretty sure that me and Chris and Daniel all recorded at the same time. And that's why it's got that kind of like the tension and the sort of speeding up and slowing down is really, I think that would have been pretty difficult to do separately. Yeah. I mean, with the piano at the beginning there, like it almost sounds like you did more than one pass. This was like the first record, you know, that I ever did under my own name. And um, I'd been working on the songs with a different piano player and I'm just doing like just guitar and piano and voice. This woman, Beth Heinberg, who actually played piano on a few cum records and, and did sort of stripped down tour that me and Chris did. So we were playing together a lot. And then pretty early on to the recording, she was like, I don't think I want to do this anymore. I don't really want to do the recording, but I was kind of in the lurch a little bit. So um, I was looking for a piano player that could pick stuff up really quick. I knew Mel because he played bass in Victory at Sea. And I didn't really know that he played piano, but I was asking him if he knew any piano players. And he's like, well, I could do it. I was like, I need a real piano player. And he's like, no, I can really (laughs) play piano. And he could, you know, and he came down and did the part. And Beth did actually play on a few songs on that record, but most of the stuff was done with Mel. So Mel came in and recorded his parts. And then Beth came in like the last day to do the two or three songs that she played on. And she's like a real like pro. She, you know, taught at Boston Conservatory then. And she sat down at the piano and she's like, I can't play this thing. And we're like, what do you mean? She's like, this piano is horrible. I have to pound on it to get a sound out of it. I walked over and like, did it. And sure enough, you had to like really hammer the key. But Mel had never said anything about it. You know, like (laughs) it was a really cool old grand piano that was in there that was kind of a mess. And that probably in a way added some of the character of the piano sounds on that record. Does it make a difference? I've struggled with keyboardists in rock bands in the past in that, you know, it's hard to get somebody who's not going to like do some Elton John sort of pounding thing that goes through the entire song, but to get somebody who's just really, you know, somebody really likes the Velvet Underground or something like, okay, so what do you do on piano if you're making that approach is these light little atmospheric things, you know, that wouldn't work on so many songs if it was the equivalent of a non-piano player coming in and doing little tinkles here and there. But that's almost what some of this, especially at the very beginning, that sort of subtlety, how are you getting that out of it? Was it a matter of, of, you know, he was just going by instinct? To some extent, but I think also I probably said, you know, as a point of reference that I wanted to sound like the piano on a Bad Seeds record, you know, like Nick Cave plays piano, but it's minimal, melodic. I really loved what he did with the Bad Seeds in terms of textures and stuff. You know, it was like still songs, but it was never really rock anymore, but it was really interesting arrangements. 
Well, it's interesting that follows the pattern vocally that, you know, I know when you've done covers, well, it's a Lou Reed song, but it's Candy Says, which is the nicest, most melodic possible Lou Reed song, (laughs) but it's got a Dylan cover, a Leonard Cohen cover. It's all these voices that are not talk singing exactly, but, you know, are not the American Idol style, are more natural, which is kind of what your voice is. I mean, it's very interesting to hear. I had heard some of the Come stuff before and that your voice sounds like it should be very natural in a heavy distorted guitar format, but then to throw it out here with like no reverb, you know, it's very Leonard Cohen-like, I guess is what I'm saying. And Nick Cave, I guess, fall into that same sort of category. What are your vocal influences here when you're doing this kind of thing? I mean, I definitely love Leonard Cohen and, and Nick Cave. And um, I had actually been playing with this woman, Margarita Salaveria, and uh, she had a band called Un Cuerpo Exquisito. It was pretty influential with me because she would take these really classical American sort of country songs mm-hmm. and sing them in Spanish in this really torch songy type way. Like, like she had this version of the Tennessee Waltz, which was just achingly slow and just like mind blowing. Like she would slow things down and make it was like really dramatic. And she was she was really petite woman with a really low and really powerful voice. It was like really striking. And so um I think I was influenced a lot by kind of like the way she sort of what she did with arrangements in terms of like the power of just like a voice. You know what I mean? Of course she had a really great voice. I don't consider my voice a great voice, but I think it can be just a, a way to sort of frame a song that gives the voice some power. And I think particularly like the last come record, Gently Down the Stream, which was had some stuff that was really, really rocking and stuff. I think I was kind of looking for a situation where I could sing rather than sort of like scream over stuff. And so, yeah, I was, I've been listening to kind of like a lot of, you know, Nina Simone, real singer singers and, you know, trying to pick up what I could in terms of arrangement. Well, this is much more swooping vocal as compared to something like Northwest Branch, where it's yeah, Greek, that one's under the hot. You know, it's pretty much a couple notes. It's going between. That's more of the typical the thing that that kind of voice that I was referring to does. But this has got yeah, I can see the torch song thing there, especially when we get to this Latin section here. Which is it? Does it just sound Latin because that's what Dan on drums decided to do, or because your part is just da, 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 da. like it's not particularly, but it's just when he set that beat down, then like oh, this is a a samba or something. Yeah, I think Daniel kind of like, like I came up with that sort of like the break and then it goes, you know, dun, 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 and then he just started doing this beat and it's like, yeah. And then I think also I was actually re-listened to that song before I talked to you just to kind of refresh my memory. And I think also like the piano line, dun, 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 Well, that's the bass, the bass spot. There's no bass on this, right? No, uh-uh. Yeah, I think kind of everyone... Once Daniel started doing that drum beat, everyone kind of like fell into that kind of thing. I mean, it was vaguely Spanish, but I'm not an expert at different rhythms, you know, so I'm sure it was an an incorrect samba rhythm or whatever. I wasn't even thinking in those terms, but I think Daniel heard it and actually knew how to play that kind of feel, you know, and then everyone else went in behind it. Well, that's an old rock tradition. I very much approve of that in terms of I want to do something that sounds weird. So I'm going to do something that's vaguely Arabic or vaguely Latin, but I don't really know anything about those kinds of music. And so I don't know exactly which Bulgarian thing I'm stealing from or whatever. But to tell you the truth, I was really into flamenco music at the time. And so I listened to quite a bit of it. I had spent quite a bit of time in Spain, actually, with Come on the, the 
last record. We were really big in Spain and we toured there a lot. So um, I was not coming from a place of total naivete about what I was doing in terms of that. I can't say, oh, I never know any Spanish music. <laughs> I did, you know, but I, after playing during the 90s with um, the singer um, Lourdes Perez, who is from Puerto Rico and playing on some of her songs, I know that I don't know that stuff. Yeah. It's a really, really different rhythm that if you're born into listening to it all the time, it comes extremely naturally, or if you're like really study really hard, then you can learn it. But I was kind of neither. So, but you were not tempted, given that you didn't have uh, the, you know the restrictions of no overdubbing or anything after you'd done your main part to get out a nylon string and do a little. No, 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 no. I would never. Yeah, and then so you've got that main section that's the whole verse to chorus, and then you've got this transition. You've got this just interesting place to solo in kind of a nice minor key, then major key, but it's all a transition. It just seems to be something to get between the two tempos. Can you say a little bit about where this would come in the process? Was this just something that as you were doing the main riff, that transitioning to that was natural? and then, Or did you have the Latin thing and the intro thing and had to connect them somehow? What I will tell you is I definitely worked for a really long time on this song. Like I had like the main riff, which was, wasn't super Latin-y. It was more sort of like the B minor to C part and then the D to C part. And then really liked that and had sort of like the vocal melody in my head. But the, you know, the arrangement went through a bunch of different things. So I think I was trying to be like, okay, well, I need another part. You know what I mean? Like it probably started when I, started playing it like really slow like that the do 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 just on the bass string yeah it was probably like a bridge to get between that and the main section of the song this which became sort of like this more sort of spanishy type thing it was a, it's a bridge i guess that you would call that a bridge yeah a bridge except it's right near the beginning of the song <laughs> that you're jamming on right. b minor to a basically and then now we're jumping to f it's a bridge in the sense that it's bridging two parts of the song i don't, I don't know what technically the a bridge means, but... Right, usually it's just referred to as the middle eight. I think oh, okay. some British person called what I normally call the bridge, the thing at the end of the song before the solo. It's like a little footbridge that crosses the river to the other part of the song. So this is exactly the kind of thing that, even if you wrote this song playing by yourself, that you'd get to that section and like, well, what am I doing here? Like, unless you've got viola soloing over that section, then it just seems like, what are we doing? <laughs> The solo has to kind of carry it forward. I mean, quarterly, it makes sense, but yeah. I did kind of have that, though, before the whole band played it. I think I did have it. But it was also definitely like, how do I get from the beginning of the song to the main part of the song? Sure. But I think the arrangement wasn't so much about one particular instrument, like the viola or the piano or anything like that. It was more kind of like rhythmically, how do I... Because there's a go from the slow part of... Playing basically the beginning is the same as the sort of Spanishy main part of the song, but but just slow down a lot. And then that bridge is just getting from, I don't know. Would it being so slow be a part of your original compositional idea? Because I could see it, that bridge coming more naturally if you're thinking, da, 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 da. You can play that on the guitar by yourself and it sounds like it's full, but when you slow it down to where it actually is, like either you're just a very, very patient person 
And that still sounds natural to you, which seems like that fits with the whole slow burn image. Or it was something like, okay, we have this thing that's a little faster now to sort of make it properly emotional, to milk it enough. Let's actually slow it down. I think that was the beginning from always, yeah. And I think the part that maybe came in more so in the arranging once the rest of the players in the band were in place was probably the break part. You know what I mean? The sort of like, all right, so I'll have the guitar do the solo and then everyone kind of comes in on that part um but yeah the beginning thing was there actually i kind of remember showing that to people yeah including the transition yeah that's part of the beginning yep okay yeah it kind of sounds okay with just guitar too like it's because it's just kind of like yeah sure it's very much like a float in that this meditative thing there's space Yeah, exactly. So I guess just returning to that, when you write these things that leave all this space, how do you keep, especially having a piano player and a violin player there, how do you keep them out of the space? And a bass player. (laughs) Oh, yeah, a bass player now. Well, yeah, I guess you really have to whip your bass player to keep, (laughs) just keep the, save the riffs for special places. (laughs) Otherwise, just hold it down. It's something that we really have to work at. And I do a lot of that kind of arranging in the studio, especially on the the last record. I'd say the last two records, I worked with Andy Hong on Eve and on the EP6. And he helped me with that a lot. So we would, to some extent, do a bunch of the arrangements in the mixing process. So experimenting more with taking instruments in and out. And I think it worked really well, though. I mean, definitely got a little bit of blowback from the band. Like, hey, what happened to my piano part in that section? Ah. It's kind of like, sorry. You know, in the, in the course of mixing, we'd be like, okay, there's too much going on here. And how, what can we take out? How can we take out some instruments and bring it back in? It's probably not the most efficient way of working. And I think that Andy, though, he helped me a lot with it. Kind of wished that I had figured that stuff out beforehand, but um, <laughs> sometimes it's easier just to do it by yourself when you're mixing it than it is to work all that stuff out in detail and rehearsal. We've always kind of had a thing where like our record sound, people play slightly different, you know, when we're playing live than on the record. So it, it never seemed like too much of a big deal to me. But um, I'd say I, I do that mostly with the viola. We usually do a lot of editing and with the piano to a lesser extent. When you're editing viola, does he have multiple passes down there for you to pick yeah. from? Okay. That's usually how we do the viola part is that he'll, he'll put down two or three passes and then we'll just kind of figure it out. Even from been here and gone, that's how we've been recording the viola. Cause Dave's kind of really an improviser by nature and it's really, really difficult, if not impossible for him to play the same thing exactly the same way twice. So we just like, all right, just play it like three times and we'll figure it out. So kind of gotten in the habit of, of working that way. So you can't really do that though with, well, if you do it with bass, then you have to what? Either have multiple passes or copy something from somewhere else in the song. We don't do that with bass, no. And then drums, you just... Not with drums either, Just the fact that you have a different drummer now that either is just a less busy player or he's newer and you can kind of bully him more or something. No, no, no. That's all Jonathan. He is incredibly amazing drummer and a really great writer of drum parts. And he actually plays less and less and less. And sometimes I have to be like, man, play more, you know, like we'll go into the studio to record a song and, and he'll have stripped his, his drum part. You know, I think I'm not going to come in until the last eight measures of the song. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> I had a drummer who got sort of more and more tasteful such that he would like, I don't even need to bring toms to gigs anymore. I don't think we need them. Like, no, yeah. please bring toms. Please, can, I, I want more bombast than that. I got 
Yeah, no, that's all Jonathan. And yeah, he's a already, I've never written drum parts for any of my drummers, but sure. I definitely would never need to edit his parts. They're really super tasteful. And not that Dave isn't, but just the way he works is more of an improviser. It's just easier and nicer for everyone to just kind of let him fly, you know? Yeah, Daniel sounded like had more sort of Stuart Copeland or something in him. Some of these older tunes, like it's part of what makes the tune. Like I'm not ripping on it, but it makes it. You guys sound more like a prog band or something, is with a little more <laughs> of this element of just fierce drums making things sound. Maybe that's why I was thinking that the new album sound more acoustic or something than because it's just less reliant on drum kit as being the thing that you're listening to. Part of that is that sort of the nature of the songs and stuff, but also. Or that's just like how Jonathan heard it. And uh, he is, brings a lot of dynamics in, sometimes using the drums more for dynamics than for actual keeping time, which is cool. But then we'll have songs like Northwest Branch where he's just totally John Bonhaming it, it up. You know, so Let's throw out our third song, Hell is in Hello, from the album right after the one we heard called Trust Not Those in Whom Without Some Touch of Madness, 2004. The first one officially credit to the Talia Zedek band, Although I guess on this, it's really just you and David on viola and Daniel on drums, right? That's it. Right, which was the band at that time. Because, uh, you know, I did that first record, but we never really toured with all those people. Like, I did a bunch of solo stuff touring on that record. And then also touring on that record, we kind of figured out that we could just get away with guitar, viola, and drums. And that's what we kind of became for the next six years. Until Liars and Prayers, a trio of just guitar, viola, and drums. Why do you hate the bass? What's wrong with that? Well, you know what? <laughs> I do like bands without a bass for some reason, but I don't hate the bass. I have a bass player now. Sure, I love sure. I love Winston to death. He's <laughs> a great guy and a great bass player and a great musician. With piano and bass, it's, that's a lot of bass, you know, and guitar and viola, which is kind of like a pretty... You know, it's about, I think a viola is like exactly an octave underneath a violin. So somewhere between a cello and a violin. Well, yeah, I was thinking that with the trio in, in particular, that you didn't have the low left hand of the piano, but it sounds like just the way that you play guitar. I mean, I know there are some bands that, you know, somebody plays a baritone guitar or something to, to kind of fill that space, but it's that you're happier near the nut, that, that you're happier playing at the bottom. Yeah, like a lot of times, like people have thought that I'm playing a baritone. It's like my guitar, I play a Hagstrom one, which is it's just a regular six string guitar, but it just has this really great low sound, you know, like really clear. It's kind of got, got a lot of lows and a lot of highs and not a lot of mid range. So it fills in that frequency pretty well. But, you know, I eventually did kind of get tired of that combination. And that's why, because it, I was basically had to play rhythm guitar all the time. I could never really do a lead because then everything would just kind of the bass and the rhythm would kind of drop out and it would just be like viola and drums. Certainly no solo unless the, what, you know, you're playing in E or you tune the low string down to yeah. D and then you can pluck the low string while you do a riff up high. You can do that for a couple measures, but that's kind of a one trick. We did like three records as a trio. We did, well, we played three records. We toured Been Here and Gone. It wasn't recorded as a trio, but it was toured as a trio. And then we did an EP for our local label, Kimchi Records, that I think you've heard the Your Big Girl Now EP. And then Trust Not, all those as a trio. Yeah. And then, then I was kind of like, okay, I think, I think we've done all we can do. Or I felt like I had done all I could do with that sort of combination. And by that time, Mel had left Victory. He had broken up and, So he came back and then also asked Winston to rejoin. So, yeah. 
Which lineup was Winston in before? Winston played on the last come record, yeah. Okay. On Stanley Down the Stream was Winston Brayman on bass and Daniel Coughlin on drums, both of who played in On Liars and Prayers with me too, which was the solo record that came out in 2008 under Talizetic Band. All right, so all this was supposed to be in prelude to Hell is in Hello. Do you want to say anything specifically about that song? So I think I picked that song because I think it kind of shows like a, a different side of me that which is sort of like working not just with melody and chords, but also sort of like with sound and noise and sort of improvisational parts, which that whole middle section is. Um, Dave's a huge part of that, but I'm also creating, generating a bunch of noise. And, you know, we would work together a lot with sort of like the feedback and stuff like that. Um, All three of us just improvising. And I, I really enjoy doing that kind of thing too. And like to try to leave some room for improvisation in the songs. I mean, not all the songs have it, but there's always at least two or three, if not more songs on the record that have some section that is improvised. All right. Yeah. Let's not even give them any more of a warning than that. So here it is.
wow. So that's a very similar structure to the other songs. It's another six and a half minute song and starts again with, so again, the song is founded on a short riff of yours. In this case, it's actually not the first thing that you hear that we hear the, uh, I guess, is that you doing some atmospherics under the viola solo? Dave's got a, a loop going. Yeah. Okay. He's looping there. Either he did it for a while, but you faded in after he'd already started. You know, there's already. <laughs> Some stuff under there is what I'm saying. Usually looping, you kind of hear the first thing and then it keeps going while there's more played on. But here, you know, right from the first note, you've already got this bed of something under there. Yeah, he looped it. Some of it's looped live and some of it's like a loop that is uh, saved. Okay. And is that what you were doing later in the song or do you have, you just overdubbed yourself a couple of times during the freak out part? I mean, there's definitely like three different guitars there. Yeah. Yeah. Overdubs. Okay. Okay. I think I only had like two guitar parts, like the basic track, which was, I might've done a second noise track. And then Dave probably did three or four different tracks with sort of different things on it that we mixed in. He's doing that cadenza at the beginning. How do you determine sort of how long that is? When do you st- just whenever it feels natural, like the drums come in and break it up at some point. But how many times would you have to do that before determining when the drums would actually add that? The drums enter after like 41 seconds I've got here. So there's no, just, really that yeah, long? Yeah. Unless really the cadenza is going to like the drums at least were conducting or doing something really light, at, you know, from the very beginning. But the first time I could hear it was about 41 seconds in. So I wasn't sure if this would completely freeform viola, but it sounds like you're saying that, no, there was a beat at the beginning. You just don't hear it. Yeah, I think there was a beat at the beginning. Well, that makes it, yes, much easier to structure. And in fact, even these improv sections, it still sounds like you have in mind the progression that was in the chorus right before that. It's just that nobody's playing that anymore. You've moved out of the chord. It's just amazing that it can kind of go on, you know, it's like over two minutes of this crazy noise stuff, but it seems to work largely because the drums play the beat for a while and then freak out and then go back and play the beat for some more, you know, where normally it would just be the beat plays, the beat gets more frantic and then it gets out of control. And then you've got to have a full stop spill into a big four measure long drone or something. It's got to do something, but it's really clever. I've just never heard something. Maybe I don't listen to enough free jazz to (laughs) Daniel Coughlin is a really amazing drummer he was like classically trained and just a real monster so yeah he is freaking out but he's got it completely under control the entire time so i'm just kind of letting him come back in you know like he's playing all this crazy stuff but he he never loses track of where the beat is or or anything so he kind of starts the song and then i come in after the drums come in with my guitar part i think dave starts the song and daniel comes in then i come in and then dave kind of cues Daniel when that freak out part is ended. At least that's the way we did it live. Dave would kind of go to this part and then Daniel would kind of like come out of it and go back into the really, really simple drum beat. I think it's just a... It's kind of like a really simple song with I think like a really pretty melody and kind of really like the lyrics, but it's mostly, it's pretty sculpted by every all three of us, you know? When the vocals finally come in, just the fact that when you introduce a new chord, it sounds really beautiful there, you know, it's so lyrical, you know, it's just because it's been droning for so long on that building up to that point.
Well, we go from like the B to the G a couple times before uh-huh. like building into it. And then it just kind of takes off. Yeah. And goes into like, that's a fun one. We haven't played that one since Daniel left the band, actually. I don't think, because even that's a really simple drum part, like none of the other drummers even that I've played with, even though they're all really great in their own way and they celebrate the differences that they bring to the band, that song just never seemed to work with any combination except for me and Dave and Daniel. Well, that's kind of what I was talking about in terms of a particular arrangement getting in your head. You might have written this by yourself, but then once you have these experiences with a particular drummer or whatever doing something over it, then it's always, you kind of have to recreate it if you're going to do it with a different lineup, at least, unless they're you know exactly imitating. What in your mind becomes irrevocably part of the song? That unless you had that drum part, like it's not going to be the same song. You know, it seemed to be the hardest thing for every drummer we tried to do it with, because we did try to do it because it was a total showstopper live. I mean, a blast to do that well, live. You could make it a 20-minute jam. You could make you could make it as long as you damn want. It is the closer on the album, so... Yeah, so uh, we definitely tried, and the thing, they couldn't seem to get just like the basic drum beat. It just didn't seem to make sense. So not even the freak out part? No, it wasn't even that. It was just like the don't, don't, don't. I don't know, it just couldn't, even though to me it was like, but it's so simple. You know, but it just seemed like the whole thing, or if they could get that, then the freak out part didn't make sense, and it just seemed to not make sense to anyone else, except for the three of us. <laughs> you got to just reinterpret it and sort of make a drum machine industrial version of just that one part that plays. Yeah. <laughs> and then you get rid- yeah, then you turn it off when the- it gets faster. That whole rest of the song is just kind of like the pastry that's holding the filling inside, which is really the sort of freak out part. You know what I mean? In a way, like I can't imagine like doing that song on an acoustic guitar by myself or anything like that, you know, it'd just be like two verses or something. The first verse and the last verse are just kind of like brackets holding up, you know, the rest of the insanity that's going on in the song. So what is this song actually about? Do you want to talk about lyrics or do you want to leave them a mystery for this one? Lyrics for this song came from a, a pretty specific place which I'd love to talk about. The title of the song and the line Hell is in Hello comes from a, a song called Wandering Star by um, William Shatner. It's a William Shatner song. And me and Chris and Beth Heinberg and Nancy Ash covered that song on the sort of stripped down come tour that we did in between rhythm sections. Or we did it after Near Life Experience and before Gently Down the Stream. And we were kind of like, we'd been playing with a bunch of different rhythm sections, but they all lived in different cities. And we decided Beth who played piano on a bunch of stuff was doing these really piano only versions of come songs. And me and Chris just loved it. We're like, let's do a tour like that. So we went on tour. We covered wandering star. Like I heard that song and I fell in love with it. I was kind of in a dark place in my life on that tour and, and just kind of like gone through like a really bad breakup and fell in love with that song. Particularly there's a line in the song that goes, do you know where hell is? Hell is in hello. Heaven is goodbye forever. It's time for me to go. And that was like a total like slap in the face line. I don't know if you know that song. As I'm searching it on Google here, I see Lee Marvin has a version. I don't know if that yeah that was covered by Shatner. I don't know. I don't... Maybe it was covered by Shatner. Probably wasn't written by him. No, no, it's no, like no. a real kind of cowboy song. Uh-huh. Under Andrin Star. Yeah. But I just thought that line was so brilliant. And I stole that line. <laughs> And the line of the song that goes, um, I'm just a number. I'm tired of people who are too afraid to say goodbye. Hell is in hello. Please introduce me over and over straight to my face. 
You put a question mark by na- my name. That's the same as what? What are you saying there? The same as dying. The same as gone. Something like that. It's, that's the same as gone. Okay. That part came. The question mark part came. I've worked as a cook for a lot of my adult life, and um, I was working for this catering company that I kind of fell into to the catering end of it because it was really flexible and allowed me to tour. It's usually pretty seasonal and yeah. you can take jobs and turn them down as, as you want. And it generally pays a lot better than restaurant work too. And I'd actually cut the tip of my finger off at work. A guitar intensive finger. Actually, I've done that more than once. It's a very common injury in a, the tips of your fingers actually heal just fine. Like I hadn't cut like the bone. I'd cut like the flesh, the pad, but still it sucked. And because I was an extremely heavy smoker at the time. It just didn't heal properly. And I tried to go back to work because I was working for this new company and they were really kind of jerks. And like, I was like, oh, I so I didn't really take enough time off. And I was like, oh, I'll just put a rubber glove around it. And of course, the moisture of that generated from working in a rubber glove just made things worse. And the hand wasn't healing. And I had go see a hand doctor and finally they were like, they had to like cauterize it. It's kind of gross. And they were like, you absolutely cannot work for like two weeks or something like that. So I had to call up the job who already pissed at me because it happened at work. So it was a workman's comp thing, you know, and they were had to pay all this money, you know, though they should have. So then finally, you know, my hand healed and I was calling them up. So, you know, am I on the schedule? And then I remember like, talking to one of the guys in the kitchen. He's like, let me look at the schedule. I'm walking over. He's like, I don't know. There's a question mark by your name for like Tuesday or something like that. And like, I kept calling up, like trying to find out if I was working any shifts and I'd always get that answer. Like there was my name with a question mark next to it, which I eventually, I realized that meant that I wasn't going to be working there anymore, but um, they kind of never came out and said that. So uh, that's where I got that line. So interesting to synthesize that with this relationship song. It wasn't really so much a relationship song, though, this one. But the Wandering Star one was, when I covered that song, seemed like it's somewhat about that situation because it's like, just say goodbye, you know what I mean? Like, you don't want to work there. Don't, like, have me keep calling up, like, for a month, you know, trying to find out if I'm on the schedule or not or blah, 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 you know. It was kind of about those people and, of course, about other things, too, but... And yet this is a perfect description of the texting dynamic or emailing dynamic where people just don't get around to responding to you. But yet this is not <laughs> not referring to that. This was pre-texting. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's fast forward for our final thing toward talking about the new released last November 2016, a self-titled record by a new band called E. So how does this fit in with your other work here? One thing about kind of doing the solo thing or having Tizetic band, you know, writing all the songs... I felt was feeling pretty stuck in the songwriting process, just kind of like sick of my own stuff. And, um, and I've been kind of having a bit like there's a, a big break between records, actually. Like I took like about a five year break between Liars and Prayers and Via. I kind of messed around with sort of like playing songs with someone else who wasn't in the band. And, and I realized that I kind of needed a more collaborative outlet than I was getting with the Talia Zedek band, which was sort of like everyone's in that band has their own projects and they all come together to work on my songs, which is great. But, you know, I just needed some inspiration. And, and Jason Sanford from the band Neptune was someone that for a while I'd been thinking, um, actually I'd love to play with this guy. He's really interesting. He builds all his own instruments and electronics and, but it wasn't sort of, that aspect of it. It was more like his songs. It was just something that I saw in in him at the certain juncture of what he was doing with Neptune that really interested me. And Neptune was kind of on break and not really doing too much. And 
I was kind of stuck and, you know, just like, hey, do you want to get together and start messing around sometime? And to my surprise and happiness, he said yes. So it started out with just me and Jason getting together, I don't know, sometimes once a week, sometimes once every two weeks and just making noise. And we did that for like nine or 10 months, just kind of recording stuff. And we kind of ended up like having some songs. And then a drummer that TZ band was playing with this guy, Alec Tisdale, and who I thought was a brilliant drummer who I'd seen playing with this Providence band, Volcano Kings. So once Alec joined, we really started like writing songs and doing a lot of home recordings. We made a seven inch. And then me and Jason really wanted to tour and Alec really didn't want to tour. And he also rejoined the Volcano Kings and was, so we kind of parted ways with him. And Gavin McCarthy from Karate had been coming to all our shows. And Gavin is just an amazing drummer and he just killed it right away. And we all started writing. We kept a a bunch of the songs we, we wrote with Alec, but also wrote a bunch of new songs. And yeah, we're able to put out a record and go out on tour. And we're actually about making a, a new record this summer to our second record. And the songwriting process in that one is, is, is really different. It's really collaborative and I'm not the lead singer. We all do lead vocals and we all, sometimes we, there'll be two lead vocalists on one song or. Well, and you're both guitarists, right? So the, these, it sounds like Regatta was the tune I was, was going to play. Jason also plays a bunch of instruments that he invented. We don't have a bass player. So he's got um a thing called a stomp box, which is kind of like an oscillator that's sort of tuned and that he plays by basically stomping on. It's a wooden thing. And then he's got a couple electronic things he built. And he also built his guitar, which he does different things with, with like alligator clips and treating his guitar. A lot of that interesting noise stuff going on is Jason's guitar. It's been really fun. And it really did help me as I'd hoped, like reduce my system. And, you know, and then then I was able to write another solo record and, you know, just kind of needed another band. You know, I needed a side a different sort of band to be in. So yeah, that helped a lot. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was great talking to you, Mark. Thanks for uh, talking to me.
Thank you so much for Talia Zedek. Very chatty. And I know I haven't done one of these in a while, but there's a bonus extra addendum to this episode where she gives some information on her pre-solo bands and you get to hear three more songs. Now, as you know, Nakedly Examined Music is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network. And if you're already a recurrent supporter of those efforts, in other words, a Partially Examined Life citizen, then you have access to the bonus audio through your citizen feed there. Well, newly, as of this weekend, if you don't care about the Partially Examined Life, don't care about philosophy, there's another way to get this bonus content, and much more cheaply, I have now created a Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic, because this thing needs to start paying for itself been doing it for a year and a half. I've really enjoyed it, but we do have production costs. And right now, this is still basically a free rider on the Partially Examined Life. And in fact, even if some of you have been donating to this show through that website, we have no way of knowing that. So as far as the other PEL guys are concerned, I'm just mooching off them. So if you enjoy this podcast, please go to that Patreon page. You can pledge any amount per episode. It could be just like a quarter per episode. I think a dollar per episode is probably fair, given the amount of effort involved in creating these. In any case, whatever amount you pledge, you will then have access through Patreon.com, or they give you a URL that you can put in your preferred podcast app, and you can get all the bonus content right through that page, as well as actually all the regular episodes. Again, that's Patreon.com slash Nakedly Examined Music. Thank you so much for listening, and thanks again to Talia. I hope you support her and the other artists I talk to. She's doing a lot of really interesting stuff. And if you want to hear my music, go to marklinch.com. Until next time, keep on musicking. This is Mark Lintzenmeyer, signing off. <laughs>